Well, today's message is entitled, What Are You Waiting For? From 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to go through verses 11 through 16 this morning. We are almost done completing our series in 2 Peter. One more message to go. And there's a lot of good stuff that the Lord has yet in store for us. So I hope you turn there. Let me get there as well. And we'll read our text for this morning. Starting with verse 11 of 2 Peter 3. Hear the word of the Lord to us this morning, church. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that is the heavens and the heavenly bodies, which Peter was speaking about, which we spoke about last Sunday, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Let us pray. Oh Lord, I, I love the omission right here in our text this morning. That some things that are written, yes, by the Apostle Paul, are difficult to understand. And Lord, I may add this morning, some things that are written by Peter in this letter are also hard to understand. But Lord, here's our confidence this morning. That we can come to the author of Scripture. The author, the big A, the big author. And that is you. So Lord, we're asking, O author, O mighty one by your spirit, that you would help us understand these hard truths. Lord, help us. Give us clarity. Use your spirit to illumine your word this morning. Help us see the significance of that which we're reading. Help us understand how we are to be not just hearers, but doers. Lord, lead us on this morning to application, that we may know what these words not only mean, but how they relate to us and how we are to respond as your children, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if the question last week was this, what is God waiting for? We're going to turn that question upon ourselves this morning and ask this question. What are you waiting for? I mean, really, right now, what are you waiting for? I know as a child... When it came to this time of year, the fall, you know what I was waiting for? I was waiting for Christmas. That's what I was waiting for as a young child. Yeah, mommy, how many days to Christmas? All my kids growing up asked the same question. So we had Advent calendars to mark the days. We had Advent boxes. We had Advent chains. I mean, we had it all going. Anything to help them count down and to anticipate the day, the arrival of Christmas. But you know what? When we grow up and get a little older, we're still waiting. We're still waiting for a lot of things. 
waiting for that job opening or acceptance, that college acceptance. We wait for that big promotion. We wait for that right person to come into our life, our future spouse. We wait for children. We wait for many things. But here's the question. What if those good things that we waited for in our lives were guaranteed, certain to happen, no questions about it? You knew that you were going to receive exactly that which you were waiting for and desiring. If that were the case, how would that inform? How would that transform? How would that energize your waiting for those very things? What if you knew you were going to not just have some type of big career breakthrough. I mean, you're going big. What if you knew that you were going to win a gold medal at the next Summer Olympics? What if you knew you were going to write the musical score to the next big Broadway hit or movie? What if you knew, that a shadow of a doubt, that you were going to have healthy baby boy twins? All right. What if you knew? How would that change your waiting? What effect would it have upon you? How would it affect your spending habits if you knew you had twins on the way? How would it affect your savings? How would it affect your house or home remodeling? How would it affect the colors you chose for their room? The point is this. Waiting would be anything but just waiting, right? Waiting would be action. And those things, if you knew you had them, would catapult you into action. You see, church, in a world of uncertainty and waiting, there is one thing that we can wait for and bake on with absolute certainty. Absolute certainty. It's the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the return of him. It's the certainty which radically informs, transforms, and energizes our waiting. What if that reality of Christ's return was settled in our hearts and minds? If that were so, I believe waiting would become anything but idle. Waiting would be anything but boring. Waiting would be infused with a new life and purpose. You see, in our text this morning, maybe you caught it, but the word waiting is used not once, not twice, but three times. It could be interpreted, maybe it is in your Bible translation, as looking forward to. Peter is repeating this theme or refrain of waiting. You see, waiting is to be active. Waiting is to be eager. Waiting is to be purposeful. Waiting is to be productive. Yes, Christ is returning as promised, and it's guaranteed by the crucified and risen Lord Savior. And you know what? That changes everything, including how we wait. You see our theme, so I'll put it up on the screen for this morning, is simply this. What you are waiting for determines how you wait. What you're waiting for determines, in other words, how you live. What you are waiting for in the future determines how you wait now in the present. And that leads to our first point. And really the question that it begs, well, what are we waiting for? What are we Christians 
really waiting for? What should we be waiting for? Point one, we're waiting for this. A, as we learned last week, the Lord's return. And that includes, yes, the Lord's coming judgment. As we read in verses 11 and 12. You see, if you were with us last week in our text, verses 8 through 10, we were reminded, and we see it again today in verse 12, that the day is coming. The day is coming when the heavens will pass away and the heavenly bodies, I would interpret that to be the heavens, the sky, the planets, all that's in it, will dissolve, be burned up. In other words, a day is coming when God will peel back the sky. He will roll it back like a scroll, to use the verbiage from Isaiah and Revelation. And he will expose the earth and all its work. No one on that day will be able to hide. No one will be able to think that they got away with it somehow. No, everyone, every work will be exposed and judged. That's where we left off last week. But notice in this text today, this is not where Peter stays. We don't stay there. Yes, God is coming back to judge. That is a sober warning indeed. But he's coming back to judge and to purify because there's something he's doing and there's something that he's making which is glorious. You see, Jesus' promised return doesn't just mean his destruction and his dissolution. No, it also speaks of God's mighty, restorative, or recreative acts as well. You see, the glory of God is not just seen in his judgment. The glory of God is also seen in his restoration as well. And it's that, church, what I'm praying this morning would fill our minds, that would animate our souls, that would energize us as we live today. There's something we're waiting for. We see it in verse 13. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Christian, welcome to your future home. Welcome to your new home. And that leads to B. What are we waiting for? Not just the Lord's judgment. That's a means, and that helps us get there, the judgment and the purifying. But it leads us to the Lord's coming restoration, which is God, ultimate judgment, excuse me, ultimate objective. So what will our new home look like, church? The new heavens and the new earth. Have you really thought about it much? Have you really thought much about what your new home is going to look like? Well, first of all, when I say new, or the Bible says new, that can mean several things. It could mean newly created. But I tend to interpret this here as new, meaning renewed or made new. That is the earth as we know it now. And the new earth, the new earth will have continuity with the old earth that we know now. But at the same time, it'll be new in quality. It will be superior in character, just like our new resurrected bodies will be as well. But what will be truly new about this new home for the redeemed humanity? What can you and I actually know about our future home? If we're waiting for the new heavens and new earth, what are we really waiting for? What does the Bible say? Well, you know what? The Bible says a fair amount. I want to remind you. Some of you, this may be the first time you've heard it. Listen closely to what is said about the new heavens and new earth. You can find what is said in the Bible by looking at two primary passages you just jot them down. Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 and 22. Both these passages, one in the Old Testament, one in the New, speak of our future home. In the TV show, Extreme Home Makeover, 
These chapters in the Bible, Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 and 22, they are the move that bus moment in redemption. Okay, if you've ever watched the show, right? It's when the partition standing between the couple and the family and their new home is rolled away like in Fixer Upper. That's what we get in Isaiah 65. That's what we get in the book of Revelation. So let's take a glimpse. Let's get a first glimpse, shall we, of God's rebuilding and his remodeling project. First of all, this new home, it'll be a country, but it'll also be a city as well. It'll be a bustling city. I know if Al were here, he'd say, amen, bustling metropolis and city, but it'll also be a garden. I kind of like that personally. I love lands. I love gardening. So it's a country. It's a city and it's a garden. Yes, all in one. Where there will be fruitful work for you and me. Uh, we'll work. Oh, but we're going to love it. We'll work. It's a place where there'll be commerce. But it's a place where there will be unending worship. It'll be a place where we live and work and we will forever and forever enjoy the fruit of our labor. It says in Isaiah 65, verse 21 and 22, I'm not going to put it out there. Just listen to these words. Let them wash over you. They, that's speaking of we, as the believers, shall build houses and inhabit them. We shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. We shall not build and another inhabit. We shall not plant and another eat. It'll be a land which is safe, peaceful, and not predatory. Reading from Isaiah 65, verse 25. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. It'll be a clean place. It'll be a sinless place. Quoting from Revelation 21, verse 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But it gets better than that. There will be no more suffering and there will be no more death nor lives snuffed out in infancy. No stillborns, no aborted babies. Listen to the words of Isaiah 65, verses 19 and 20. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. It'll be a place in which God will dwell with man. And we will reign with him forever and ever. Revelation 21 verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And lastly, it's a place where God's glory will cover every square inch, a place in which there'll be no darkness at all. Quoting from Revelation 21, verse 23, and the city, speaking of the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. You see, church, the new heavens and new earth is God's plan in Genesis coming to fulfillment. You understand, you and I, 
were made for Jesus. And you or I were made for the place which Jesus is preparing for us. That is a new heaven and new earth in which we will dwell with him forever. This is what we groan for. Isn't it? This is what our spirit groans and longs for. I wish we had time to go through all of Romans 8, or at least that section which speaks of our spirits groaning, not just our spirits, but do you realize all creation groans and waits for the day of redemption, of his restoration and our glorification? When Apostle Paul is speaking in Romans 8, he speaks about these longings, these groanings that we have inside for our future home. And he ends that section with these verse, excuse me, with these words in Romans 8, 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait. We wait for it with patience. Church, the new heavens and new earth is what we are waiting for. Can we see it yet? No, we can't. But we wait in faith. But our waiting is more than just waiting. It's a life lived which hastens the day, which hastens the day in which this reality will dawn on earth. And that leads to the second main point. Number two, how we wait. Or in the words of Francis Schaeffer, how then shall we live? That is the question at hand. A, how do we wait? We pursue holiness and godliness. Look at verse 11 again. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Now, I don't know about you, when I read that verse 11, it's a a little awkward sounding to my ears, okay? It's basically a question and it's an answer all wrapped into one clause. In other words, ought you and I, ought we not to live lives which anticipate the very thing we're waiting for? Isn't that how we should wait? What we're waiting for should inform how we live. Peter says it this way in verse 14. Look at verse 14, 2 Peter 3. Therefore, beloved, i.e., talking to Christians, believers, those who put their saving faith in Christ, since you are waiting for these, right? God's coming, the new heavens and new earth. Be diligent to be found by him. Who's him? Christ, who is returning. But be found without spot or blemish. Oh, this is great. And at peace. What does that mean? It means certainly we ought to live lives of holiness, of purity, of godliness, knowing that Jesus Christ, oh, he's coming back. He's coming back to expose. He's coming back to judge. And he's coming back to purify. And that should sober us, should it not? And it should have a bearing on how we live today as those who fear God. But this truth, oh Christian, shouldn't cause us to fear condemnation or judgment. For the one who was found without spot or blemish is Jesus, the lamb who was slain. And it's Jesus who makes us holy and whose holiness we are to reflect. And it's Jesus. He is the one who is preparing us for that new home. Love that phrase, verse 13, in which righteousness 
dwells. That's the home he's preparing us for in holiness. And it's that truth which should animate us to live a life of anticipation in our new home with Jesus. That becomes clear in verse 13. Verse 13 in our text this morning really is a linchpin verse. Verse 13 really connects the two exhortations that we find in our text, right? The exhortation about holy living, verses 12 and 14. So let's read that verse again, verse 13, the linchpin verse. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, to be holy, we often think that means, okay, I gotta be, gotta be pure, gotta be perfect. No, what God is saying, and what God is saying through Peter is this. No, we are to be holy and that we are to be set apart. We're to be set apart for Jesus. We're to live lives set apart for Jesus and the new home which he is preparing for us. And certainly that means purity, as we see in verse 14. Yes, diligently pursue purity. Holiness. Live lives that are set apart for Jesus. Live lives that are set apart for his coming kingdom. And by the way, live lives that reflect that kingdom now here on earth. That's what he's talking about when he says, be holy or live lives of holiness and godliness. You see, living holy lives is so much more than just being good. Living holy lives is so much more than just staying out of trouble, okay? Just stay out of trouble and stay clear of God's fiery judgment. Just get your fire insurance and get saved. Oh, do not reduce Christianity to that, my church. That is not the Christianity of the Bible. No, Christianity in the Bible, as you read today, is about living for that day living for the day of eternity, living to see Jesus and to dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. You see, sometimes I, I do have this fear that we can communicate, especially to our children, or we can even perceive as the main goal or objective of Christianity. It's just to stay out of trouble. You know, just, just live a life, keep your hands clean, okay? Keep your little dirty paws out of the cookie jar. That's the Christian life. Really? See, I think as a church, we can unwittingly communicate that Christianity, well, it's really about, you know, being better than the average person. It's about outlasting the evil competition, so to speak. You see, the Christian life can be reduced to merely enduring, just surviving, just surviving until Christ returns, you know? I mean, hey, I got a nice family. I got a decent income. Let me just live a life, not be too tainted by the world, not be too tainted, and just hold on. Really? Is that it? When I start having those thoughts, I get really concerned. I get, I want to puke. That's what I do when I, when I had that thought. Is that what life's about? Oh, church, where is the godly ambition? to see his kingdom come, to see his will be done, to live like Jesus is coming and to believe it. And your life is dedicated towards seeing that Christ is coming and saying, Lord, I want you to come and I'm going to do everything that I can do to make sure it's sooner rather than later. Is that your mentality? See, church, waiting is about action. Waiting is about anticipation. Waiting is about preparation. And waiting is about hastening. There's nothing idle or stagnant about it. It's interesting. When Peter says back in verse 11, he says, what sort of people ought you to be 
and lives of holiness and godliness. The word there in the original for holiness and godliness is plural. Kind of odd. Peter is saying we ought to live lives of holinesses, of godlinesses. Well, does Peter have that bad grammar? What does that mean? What's going on here, Peter? I think what Peter is saying this, there are a lot of godly behaviors. There are a lot of good works which we are to do. Live it. Go do it. In light of Christ's return, get to work. Or verse 14, be diligent. In other words, hop to it and hasten the day of the Lord's return. You see, our waiting, it's producing something. It's not idle. Our waiting is accomplishing God's very purposes. And that leads to be how we wait. We wait, yes, pursuing holiness and godliness. And we wait, be, with purpose. With purpose. We are to wait with purpose. For it's our holiness and godliness which actually hastens the day of the Lord's return. It's right there in verse 12. Read it again. Waiting for... We can miss this next phrase. Just gloss over it. Don't do it. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. What does that mean? Our waiting can somehow, our lives of godliness can somehow hasten the day that Christ will return. Well, hasten means to hurry up. That we can somehow hurry up literally by extra effort. To quote the ESV study Bible, the coming of the day of God suggests that by living holy lives, Christians can actually affect the time of the Lord's return. Is that really possible? Some of you here, some of you here go, whoa, wait, wait a sec, time out. I've been pretty well taught here about God's sovereignty. How in the world can we affect the time of Christ's return? Doesn't he have it all figured out? Hasn't he appointed the time? Well, church, I believe God, yes, indeed is sovereign. And yes, God has decreed the time of Christ's return. But listen to this. This is important. God has also ordained that his purposes would come about through human agents. Who are those? That's you. And that's me. For Christ told the disciples before he was going to ascend back to heaven, he told them this in Mark 13. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. First, and then I will return, right? Well, who has been tasked with that? Going and proclaiming the gospel to the nations. I think you know. It's a church. It's you. It's me. It's called the Great Commission. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. We have a role You have a role. I have a role in fulfilling God's purposes and thus hastening his return. Our actions actually do have end time significance. The lives we live as Christ's witnesses on earth in holiness, in godliness, in obedience are actually part of God's redemptive plan, including the plan of his return. See, I believe verse 12 is there. We could just say, and waiting for the day of his return. But I believe that phrase there, waiting and hastening, is there to fuel that godly ambition. That you may know that your life matters. And how we wait 
really matters. As we live and proclaim Christ in eager anticipation and the fulfillment of his return, we indeed know that we are getting closer. Oh, we're getting closer, church, to the return of Christ. From a human perspective, we are speeding Christ's return. Now, I admit there's a mystery there, isn't there? It's an age-old mystery of God's sovereignty and our work and how they interrelate. But I believe it's a mystery that is there to move us and to motivate us and to activate us into action as we wait. This past Wednesday, uh, I thought we had a really good men of the word class. By the way, men who were there, thank you for investing the time of being there. We actually went through this passage. We just dug in. We read all of Second Peter. Then we read this passage the whole thing, we dissected it, we examined it. It was rich. And after the, the class, David Bush sent me just an email. I thought this might relate. It's a quote from a professor and theologian, John Frame, which succinctly captures the significance of our waiting and working. Let's put it up there. There you go. Thank you, Stephen. Here it is. To feel significant is to recognize that God has given each of us an important role in history. And that he has arranged everything else in the universe to be consistent with that role. Catch that? Let us sink in. God has arranged everything in the universe. Everything. That includes the very timing of his return, the heavenly body's dissolution in the recreation or restoration of the new earth. Everything to be consistent with our role in hastening the Lord's return. You see, when you proclaim Christ, when you share your faith, you are hastening the day. When you pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. You are hastening the day. Think about this, especially knowing the culture that we live in here in South Florida. When you serve your employer or your customers with integrity, with integrity, when you serve your family and your community with kindness and compassion, when you work with diligence in your job, with an energy in your study, in a creativity, even beyond the call of duty, do you know what you're doing when you do that? Do you really know? You are modeling to the world what the kingdom of God looks like. The new heavens and the new earth, what his reign and his rule looks like. And may, may dare I say it? You are bringing the kingdom closer. You are hastening the day. I mean, do you believe it? Do you really believe that? Is this just highfalutin theology? Or do we actually live that way? Do you actually believe that the 110 hours that you have per week awake outside of these gathered church activities, those 110 hours, the life lived at your workplace and in your home, do you really believe what you're doing there counts? That what you're doing is not just a gap filler, okay, so you can get back here on Sunday. What you do is not, it's about getting a paycheck so you can pay the bills, all right? 
and live another day? What if your work, what you do, and how you do it reflects Jesus in the workplace and in your homes? And what if it actually matters to God, your work, and how you reflect him in holiness and godliness and hasten the day, if that work matters as much to him than your participation right here on a Sunday morning? You see, God has arranged it so that your work, every minute of it, every gritty detail, really does matter in God's economy and plan. But it still takes waiting, doesn't it? And it still takes patience. When our efforts, our godlinessnesses, so to speak, from Peter, don't seem to be making a difference. And that leads to the final point there. How do we wait? Yes, pursuing godliness and holiness with a purpose and see with patience. Let's look at verse 15 and 16 again. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all these letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. That's true. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. That is true. As they do the other scriptures. That may seem like a little odd way to round out our text this morning, to finish. At least it's unexpected, isn't it? But what's happening here? Peter is reminding us that the perceived slowness of the Lord's return is indeed his patience. And his patience is mercy and it's salvation. Do you see it? Salvation, as we spoke about last week, for all of those who have not yet bowed the knee. And Peter's basically saying, if you don't believe me, Read the writings of our brother Paul. Who's that? The Apostle Paul. Obviously, the Apostle Paul's letter was circulating at this time. He writes of the same thing. What I'm sharing is not just my personal opinion. It's been prophesied of old, and it's been even told by Apostle Paul himself. We are all in one accord. He's giving what he's saying, wait. This patience of the Lord is his kindness and his mercy and its salvation to all who have yet to bow the knee. Friends, you may feel like you're waiting for Christ's return and all that you're doing is making really little difference. You may say, I think it's making no difference in the scheme of things. You go to work, you try to work hard. You know, you do your best to reflect Jesus in the workplace, to represent him well in your home. God wants to remind you that your waiting and your effort is not in vain. Do you recall what was said last week? God will not turn out the lights until all of his children are home. Church, we are that light. We are Christ's light in this world. We are that light. That's what waiting is all about. It's being that light in this dark world, living lives of holiness and of godliness, reflecting Jesus, who he is, and the place he has destined us for, the new heavens and new earth, our future home. That's what waiting is about. And we are that light. And until Christ says no more and clicks off the lights, we have a job to do in living that life and hastening the day. 
I love what commentator David Helm says. Since this is the case, let's get on with productive waiting. We know what is asked of us. We know what awaits us. And we know that God has more people to be introduced to him through us. Oh, church, let's get off our heels. Let's lean forward, waiting and yes, hastening the day of the Lord's return. You see the title of our message, what are you waiting for? It has a question mark at the end. Yeah, it's a question. What are you waiting for? But it's more than a question. It's an exhortation. In light of these truths, what are you waiting for? Go for it and do it. You may say, great. How do I do it? Sounds good. Help me out. I'm not sure about you, but I often need a little jump start. In fact, our van needed a jump start this week, okay? That's not unusual. It needed a jump start to get home. So Tim Kelso, thank you very much, came to rescue my wife and my daughter to give our van a jump start. But you know what? I often need a jump start as well. Okay, I'm hearing what you're saying, but how do I do it this week? How do I wait with anticipation? How do I hasten the day? Well, here's some thoughts as I've been praying. I believe there's steps that you can take this week to jumpstart you if you're feeling a little idle right now in life. You're just in survival mode, okay? That helps lift your eyes and help get you going in the direction that you really want to go. Number one, instead of praying, I feel that some of you, there's an investment of time or money that God is asking you to make, maybe even this week, to demonstrate that your treasures are not here on this earth, but in heaven, the new heavens and new earth. There's something that you can do this week that God may be calling you to do. It's a statement. It's a statement to God, not a statement to me, not proving anything to me, a statement to God and even to yourself that I want my affections to be there, the home which I was created for. And I am putting my finances there and I'm committing my time for eternity. What is it that you can do this week? For some of you, maybe it's doing one radical act of kindness or compassion this week for a neighbor, maybe for our own family member. You see, the new heavens and new earth, it's a country, it's a city, it's a garden. You know what else it is? The Bible speaks of this also as a heavenly banquet or a gala. I was just thinking of Friday night, Jeannie had the heartbeat of Miami gala. It was a beautiful evening. You see, and people came dressed as appropriate to the occasion. When Peter says live lives of godliness and holiness, I believe what he's talking about there is putting on the clothes that Christ has given you, putting on that spiritual gown, putting on that spiritual tux, and living, knowing the gala that awaits you. Maybe you need to do that this week through an act of kindness to put on this godliness. You may say, yeah, that's going to feel, that just feels kind of weird. You know, it's like you show up in a tux or a gown and you go to work. People are saying, what is this about? You say, you know what? Christ gave me those clothing. clothing. And let me tell you where I'm going. You see, we're not going to stand out in our regular clothing, but God has given us new clothing of holiness to wear. Maybe you don't like to be overdressed, okay? But God is saying, I want you to put on that clothing. 
Do something radical. Do something that says my hope is for eternity in heaven and hasten the day. And lastly, maybe it's just showing the gospel, the full orb gospel with someone in your family, in your relational network this week. That's what I'm praying for. Oh, Lord, give me an opportunity. I need a jump start, okay? Give me an opportunity. If I would just make it easy, you know, I could be a little dense. I just show it to me that I'm praying that you would give me a person to speak with. I want to hasten the day. Lord, the lights are still on. I still have breath. You have not returned. There are still more of your people, more of your children yet to come home. Lord, would you use me to be your mouthpiece? Would you pray that this week? See what God does. For those of you who don't need a jump start, that's great. You're humming. Just keep going, okay? Lead the way. For those of us who put the key in the ignition and hear a you know, like click, click, you know, before the engine turns over, that's me. Oh, pray that God would jumpstart you this week. That you would live as you wait for the day of Christ's return. Team, when I come on up, worship team. And let us sing the song, The Great I Am. Because here's the reality, The Great I Am. We can't do this on our own, can we? We can get all charged up about a sermon, but you can't do it in your own strength. We need to look to Christ. We need our minds renewed as we look to Jesus. He is the one. As he fills our gaze in worship, then we can move forward in faith, knowing the one we serve and to whom we belong. Let us pray, church, with that in mind. But dear Lord, We are here, each one of us, under your word, the authority of your word this morning. And we don't want to be content just to be hearers. We want to be doers. We want to respond with that which you've put in our hearts. So, Lord, give us the grace to identify the things you're asking of us, of what it means to wait productively, to wait with purpose, to wait with anticipation as we change dirty diapers or the handprints off the wall, as we do that 50th spreadsheet this week or serve that irate customer, show us what it means to wait, to reflect, and to anticipate you, your coming, and the home for which you prepared us. Fill our gaze this morning with you, O great I am, the one who is with us, the one who will be with us, the one who empowers us, and gives us the hope that is ours for this day, we pray.